Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vactor, and I am your co-host today. Happy Monday. Uh, in studio with me is Pastor Peter Martin, as usual, our Monday Bible answer guy. Uh, how you doing, Peter? Doing good. And uh, so, uh, yes, happy Monday. Hope you had a good weekend. Now, this is a weekday 5 to 6 p.m. Bible answer program where we take questions from you, our audience, on uh, our live stream, which is live stream to multiple platforms where we take questions from people about um, the Christian worldview. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have hope in life? What is what is our reasons for hope? Uh, but pr primarily, our desire is to help people understand God's Word in a, a better way, um, especially when it comes to applying certain passages to your life or understanding their meaning. And on, in addition to all that, we want to help people know the reasons why we believe in the Christian faith, that we don't believe things because we need a mental crutch or a, an emotional crutch. We believe the Christian faith and the Christian worldview because it's true. How is it true? What is it about it that's true? Can I actually have good intellectual reasons for believing that God exists and that the Bible is historically preserved and that it is inspired by God to be without error? Things like that and many, many more. So I'd encourage you to, uh, to join us on uh, Facebook where we, one of the places we live stream, you can go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson. And when you watch the live stream, just simply leave a comment as a question, and we will try to address those questions in the show. Sometimes we don't get to all the questions, but we will do our best. And as well, if you don't mind sharing uh, our live stream, uh, maybe even uh, liking it and following it, uh, our, our Facebook page would be great. And of course, if you prefer to watch on YouTube, we live stream simultaneously to YouTube, and our YouTube handle is <clears throat> a reason for hope 546 so you can check it out there and please subscribe and hit that notification bell. We do live stream all of our services here in Tucson, Arizona from Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So this is our studio here on our church campus and we live stream to these platforms our weeknight services as well as our Sunday morning services. So if you want to uh, listen to our senior pastor, Scott uh, Richards, teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book, then please uh, feel free to chime in at any time. But for this program, we uh, specifically want to invite you to uh, engage with us on a daily basis. If you have a question and you want it uh, addressed by uh, Bible-believing Christians, then come on over and, and ask. Um, <clears throat> now, we do also upload our videos to Rumble, but we're not live streaming there yet. But if you do, please follow us. We want to grow our audience there. If you don't want to watch on a social media platform, you can just go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's Calvary Christian Fellowship, as you see in the logo there, .com. And just go to the Watch Live tab on our navigation, and you can watch not only our services, but this program. You can leave questions, you can make prayer requests, and you can engage <coughs> with other uh, viewers at the same time. So that's really pretty cool. We also have an app, so if you want to um, follow us along on your mobile device. You can download it on the iTunes and Google Play Store. As, and of course, this app is pretty pretty incredible. It has all our calendar, calendar events, uh, chat groups, has a nifty little digital Bible where you can leave notes. And uh, I, I really love the app. I actually helped put it together and, and get it working. And <clears throat> so if you want to utilize that uh, to follow along with our ministry, please do so. Uh, and we also live stream our services to all the Amazon Fire products as well as Roku. So if you want to watch our services as well as this program being live streamed, you can add our channel 
to those platforms and just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and you can download our app or add those channels to those platforms. If you want to ask a question discreetly or privately without necessarily saying who you are or anything like that, you can just email us questions or if you just prefer to email the old-fashioned way, you can go to questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, all letters, no numbers, at gmail.com. And finally, I'd invite you to go to the Twitter space. <laughs> we, uh, it's exciting what's happening there. It really is. I mean, it is the only truly large social media space where free speech is kind of becoming more and more celebrated. And, uh, and our senior pastor is pretty active, Scott Richards, on Twitter. So I would really encourage you, if you don't have a Twitter account, go create one, go and engage. There's still a lot of uh, not conservative and not Christian-leaning le people that are uh, have uh, exist on the Twitter space, so I would encourage you to do it. But go and create an account and, and follow Pastor Scott. His uh, Twitter handle is at Scott at Scott R4H. I should probably not do this with the uh, halls in my mouth, but um, anyhow, uh, let's get the program started, get to your question before we do that. Uh, Peter, would you um, bless our time with the word of prayer? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Father, we're grateful for you and all that you do in our lives, how you care for us, how you love us uh, with the, your eternal love, your, your merciful love, how you've died for us. And uh, we pray that right now we'd be able to focus in on your word and truth that the things that we say and the way that we answer these questions would bring glory to you and that those listening would be encouraged and blessed as a result. We're grateful for you, God, in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have a thank you, Peter, and thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. Yeah. Really appreciate the pastors here that are willing to, at the end of the day, <laughs> hang around and, and do this. It's really, really awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm going to go ahead and pick up where we left off on Friday, if that's all right with you. Uh, yeah. Well, you have something you wanted to cover first, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. I totally no. spaced that uh, we have another villain, I mean, another historical figure to discuss. Kind of. <laughs> how, how the Western world has been shaped. So before we, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and say the question so that you can be thinking about it. But last week, someone uh, asked a question, what should biblical dating look like for teens? Uh, what ground rules should parents lay? This is relevant because I have three boys and you have a daughter and a son all around the same age they're all under three or three and under and uh so i guess we'll have a lot to weigh in with zero experience so <laughs> two clueless people talking about nothing uh, <laughs> but uh speaking of clueless uh <laughs> yeah so who's I, next on the docket so i uh we're going to go into marks because he's very important to what's going on right now but that that'll be next week i thought it would be interesting for this week since it is the beginning of Pride Month, to talk a little bit about humanity's desire to destroy ideals and norms. So uh, we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning of humanity in Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to read the story of Cain and Abel. It's a very short story, so I'm going to read it very quickly. But I do believe that this story that, we're, that, that is so common to most people, and they understand it to certain extents, is one of the most seminal stories of human nature there is. I think it's one of the most best written stories ever in any book that has ever been written by mm -hmm. mankind. So the Cain and Abel story goes like this. Uh, this is chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a, t uh, Cain was a tiller of the ground. 
And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So in this very condensed story, what we see is we see two brothers, and they're the first children born into the fallen world. So Adam and Eve were created by special creation by God. They fell as a result of eating the fruit. And then the first two human beings to be born into this world that all of us were born into. They have sibling rivalry. And the source of the sibling rivalry is really interesting. Now, we're not getting a lot of detail by the author. I think we have to kind of come to conclusions on our own. But the insinuation is that in their sacrifices to God, Abel was making the better offering. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he was offering out of faith. The writer of Genesis tells us that he's offering of the fat of the sheep, which insinuates that Abel is giving the best of his flock, right? He's giving the best of the best. Now, we're not told what Cain is giving, but the insinuation here is that he's not giving the best of the best. He's probably giving the wilted kind of crops at the yeah. corner of his field. And, yeah. you know, it's, just, it's implied that the lemons the grocery stores don't want are the yeah. ones that he put on the <laughs> offering table. Exactly. And he's like, okay, I'm going through my duty. You know, I'm, I'm offering up to God what I'm supposed to. And that was it. But it says that God respected Abel's offering, but he did not respect Cain's. And so already what you have within humanity is you have one person who just naturally is predisposed temperamentally to get it, right? He is liked and respected by God. Possibly his temperament makes him more liked and more respected by his parents as well. So you might have a little favoritism there. And Cain grows resentful of his brother for those reasons. And God's response to him is, if you do well, you will be accepted. In other words, Abel represents the ideal of what you should orient your life toward. You should be like Abel. But if you don't, sin is at your door and it's desired to rule over you, but you should rule over it. In other words, what God is saying is if you give in to your bitterness and your jealousy and you allow your hatred for the ideal to dominate you, sin is going to dominate your life and you are going to be controlled by it and you're going to do something stupid. And then the very next verse, he kills <clears throat> his brother. Hmm. So we see in mankind from the very beginning is that the ideal, the way that we ought to be, creates in us a feeling of guilt, right? This is the whole meaning of the word sin, right? The word sin means to miss the mark. That insinuates that there is an ideal. There is something that we should be doing, and we're not doing it. And when you miss the mark, when you fail to live up to the standard, the emotion that is accompanied by it is guilt and shame, right? That's what is produced within the human heart. Our desire to avoid guilt and shame, though, is so strong that we would even murder the ideal in order to not feel guilty or not feel shameful, right? So every society has what are called the ideals. And what happened in my generation, the millennials, is people got this very strange idea of the reason why people feel guilty is because the ideal exists and we need to destroy the ideal because it's bad, right? So people who are walking around like, why are we doing Pride Month? This is not new. This is something that has been in the works for a long time. Hmm. So in the early 90s, how it began was participation awards. So most parents know about that. So what happened is kids competed against one another. It's like Cain and Abel's situation. One kid won, another kid lost. 
And instead of looking at the kid that lost, hey, little Kane, not that you would name your kid Kane anymore, <laughs> but hey, hey, little buddy, I know you lost, but let's try harder. If you do well, won't you be accepted? If you win next time, won't you get the reward? Let me show you how to get the award. Let me show you how to do better. And you can compete next time and you might be able to win. Instead of doing that, they were like, oh man, my kid feels bad that he didn't win. So what's the solution? Not try harder, but the problem is the ideal. They the problem a, is that- Instead of giving him an F, they gave him a P for passing. Exactly. The problem is that there is an ideal that makes my child feel bad about themselves. And so I'm going to dismiss the ideal. There was all this talk as well about girls who would give in to eating disorders. And they're like, well, the problem is that these beautiful models are being portrayed. Now what do we have? Plus size models. Because the idea is the ideal is what's making you feel bad. You don't feel bad <clears throat> because you are overweight or you don't match the ideal. You feel bad that the ideal is thrust in your face, mm -hmm. right? That's why you feel bad. And if we want everyone to feel good, we have to destroy the ideal. That's how we're gonna do it. It's the same attitude and mentality of Cain. I am not being accepted because I'm not doing as well as my brother. So the solution is kill my brother. <clears throat> that might be, again, that is the story of the Bible. It's a story of humanity, right? You go from the Cain and Abel story, you immediately go into the Jacob and Esau story. Well, well at first it's the Isaac and Ishmael story, same thing, mm -hmm. sibling rivalry. One is a child of promise, one is a child of the slave woman, right? Then you go into Esau and Jacob, same thing. Esau is accepted by his father, Jacob is accepted by his mother, and they have rivalry because of that. Jacob is chosen by God. Esau is not. Esau becomes murderous and tries to kill Jacob, right? It's over and over and over again. Mm. The child that is accepted and lauded over becomes the ideal, and the child that is rejected becomes murderous and jealous of the brother and tries to murder the ideal. This ultimately culminates in the murder of Jesus Christ. The ultimate ideal is put on a cross mm. and crucified by man because we can't bear to look at the ideal. We can't bear to look at the ideal because your success, in my mind, points out my failure. And Jesus says this, he says, light has come into the world, John chapter three, light has come into the world and the world can't bear it because their deeds are evil. Hmm. What's he saying? I'm the ideal. Why do the Pharisees hate me? Because I'm actually doing what they claim that they are doing. Hmm. They claim they're keeping the law, but they're not. I'm actually keeping the law. God actually opens the heavens and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The only man in history that God ever says that to. And what does that do to the hearts of men? I hate that. I hate that there is an ideal. It makes me feel bad about myself, so I must kill it. Now, a guy who really got this is a guy named Kurt Vonnegut. And there's, I was telling you before the show, this is a really funny short story that he wrote. I encourage everyone to read it. You can find it online for free. It's called, Harrison Bergeron, B-E-R-G-E-R-O-N. It was written by Kurt Vonnegut. And this is how it begins. The year was 2081 and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law, they were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 210th the 11th and the 12th amendments in the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States handicapper general. So what happens is if anyone excels in this society, they are handicapped. So for instance, you have beautiful ballerinas that, uh, that are dancing in very graceful ways. And so they hang sandbags on their necks so they can't dance in very elegant ways. And they put masks on their faces to make them look ugly. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's a really intelligent guy and he has to have hearing aids that send sharp, loud noises into his head so he can't finish a train of thought. So everybody is totally equal. What do you have? A complete annihilation of the ideal. We have to destroy it mm. because the ideal is what makes people feel bad. And so if we destroy the ideal, then everyone feels good about themselves, correct? They call it today othering people. That's right. You're othering. being othered. That's right. You're being othered. Or marginalized, uh, which is it what they would say is a form of oppression, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. That's right. Mm -hmm. And this is the whole basis of what we call queer theory, right? The, the idea of queer is other, <coughs> right? Different, right, yeah. strange. That's what the word originally meant. Mm -hmm. And so a queer sexuality just meant a different sexuality, a non-ideal sexuality that was happening. So even though Christians... But you can't even use ideal anymore. You cannot say non-ideal. You just have to say another ideal. That's right. That's right. That's why on Mother's Day, you have article after article that praises men that are getting pregnant and having bases, uh, babies and single mothers. Why? Because we can't have an ideal. We can't set up a loving heterosexual couple that has kids in a nuclear family and is raising them in the ideals of the American way. You can't have that because that makes people feel bad. Mm. After you get into, once you read the, are you going to read part of the story or are you, you already? No, no, I, I think read it on your own time if you want. I wanted to push back and see what a Marxist would say or somebody who's a cultural Marxist would say. And maybe I won't respond the way that they, but <clears throat> aren't some of these, well, first of all, a, a, an ideal assumes that there is an ideal objectively that exists. Right. And <clears throat> what they would argue is that well, there's no way to know any of these ideals. These are social uh, creations through patriarchal and misogynistic men, uh, Western, you know, they we might even hear the words, this is just stuff that was made up by white men in order to control women and to control march to, to other people to lift themselves up. It's just another form of self godhood. Uh, that people are creating these ideals so that they can control everybody and marginalize people and oppress people. Yeah, and that is a Marxist theory. So Marx had this idea that uh, he thought in economic terms, he was an e economist, we'll talk more about his theory next week, but uh, he was an economist and the idea was you have an ideal economically, namely those who are in the wealthy class that he called the, the bourgeoisie, and then you have people who are in the poor class that he called the proletariats. And the idea is that the proletariats were being othered by those who were in the upper class. And so the way that you're going to get equality is by flipping it, right? And his mantra was each according to his need and each according to his ability. So the, in other words, everyone's going to be totally equal. If you are getting less money than me, it's because they're trying to get equality, right? We're trying to get the exact same amount of money. It's I can't make more money than you because I'm smarter than you because that would be wrong. It's just whatever I have the ability to do, I have the obligation to do because that supports the state. And whatever I need is what the state should be giving me, a redistribution of wealth and funds, because if you're wealthier than me, it makes me feel bad about myself and I can't buy the nice stuff that you have. And so therefore you should give to me and then we're equal. That's the idea. Um, in cultural Marxism, which we'll talk more about in a couple subsequent weeks, cultural Marxism took the economic ideas of Marx and they moved it into behavior, right? So this is, again, the queer theory, which was written by Gail Rubin, and we'll talk more about that woman later on. But queer theory was the idea that we need to destroy what she called heteronormativity, that the fact that it is normal and ideal for people to be heterosexual and to seek monogamous relationships in which they raise children. 
right? She said that that's bad. We need to annihilate that because it makes the queer identities, people who are homosexual or people who are in single uh, relationships or polyamorous, or, it makes them feel bad about themselves. So we must annihilate the idea. We have to kill mm. Abel to make Cain <clears throat> feel good about himself. We have to kill the ideal to make those who are marginalized feel better about themselves. No, to be fair though, aren't they just saying to have these marginalized groups be recognized? Isn't that the whole idea of taking out a month? And again, I'm just playing devil's advocate mm -hmm. here. Uh, uh, trying to Adrian be hasn't fair. gone crazy. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the whole idea of a taking time to recognize a group is because they've been so othered and so marginalized right. and so unrecognized to exist. And that is and, the argument. And, and that and that they would say, "We will always exist. We will always be here. You will yeah. never erase that we exist." Right. So why not just embrace that that we're here, and not make us seem like uh, you know third class citizens? Right. So number one. The existence of ideal is a non-negotiable. Every society has to have an ideal standard of living. This is why, by the way, when we say, well, we're just trying to get equality right here, and heterosexual couples are no longer celebrated. And the reason why they're not celebrated is because the ideal has become a transgressive philosophy, not what was prior. So in other words, everything that is ideal now is what was, is, is what was unideal then. So they look at the Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview and they say, that's what's wrong. We need to kill God, we need to annihilate that ideal system, and we need to construct a brand new one in which the people who are the ideal are those living outside of the Judeo-Christian values that was once mm -hmm. considered ideal. So, you know, if you stand up and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a guy, I, I married a girl, and we have a loving family, some people actually don't like that, but most people are just, who cares? Right? You're a part of the problem. Yeah. You, are, you are a participant <clears throat> in the system that oppresses the queer identities. But on so the radical therefore, progressive framework, though, it is sort of like you. It yeah. is a, there is a disgust. That's right. Of, and that shows that there is an ideal. There is still an ideal. It's just switched. They're right? just changing it out. They're just changing it. Why is there a month that celebrates? This is not tolerance. This is not everybody should be the same. Right? If they really wanted it, it would be a really stupid-sounding holiday. But why don't they just celebrate sexuality month, right? Because we all have sexualities and let's mm -hmm. make it equal. Then nobody feels bad, yeah. right? Nobody feels othered because it's just sexuality month because we all have different sexual preferences. But it's not, it's pride month. It is specifically celebrating every sexual preference that is not mm -hmm. heterosexuality. I always found that very strange that that the pride flag and the movement, which began as a gay rights, gay and lesbian rights movement, has encompassed any any non-heterosexual sexuality or practice or fetish or belief or you know however you want to word that but <clears throat> everything but rather right. than oh it's just about this other marginalized group we're just celebrating that no it's everybody yeah. other than yeah <laughs> why do you think they call it lgbtq2s plus why does it first of all keep growing and secondly they basically put an etc at the end because it's literally everything but heterosexuality mm -hmm. that's and, that's and what it is gendered you know if you that's adopt right. if you believe and that it, term yeah even even the term cisgender is to assume that being in uh that that living out the gender identity that is in consummation with your biological sexual identity is just one possible selection of many but there's nothing special about it and like i said in many circles it's actually mm -hmm. denigrated that you're you're much more enlightened 
if you've selected an identity that doesn't just encompass what you were born into, mm. right? You're someone that's chosen something different and therefore you're more enlightened, you've thought through it more. As if, oh, you're just doing the status quo. You did the easy way out. It's right. much harder to not conform to your biological identity. But to construct your own, right? Mm. That, that's the idea. You construct your own identity out of your own uh, ideals. But uh, the interesting thing is, is what happens when you kill the ideal? Uh, well, well, two things happen. Number one, you, you mentioned this earlier, it assumes that there isn't an objective standard of living. It assumes that there's not an objective standard of living. So if I assume this ideal was just constructed, right? The, the idea that we should just have heterosexual relationships and raise kids, that was just constructed. And, and we could live in many different ways, right? What if it's true? What if we actually do have a created nature from God and there is a way that we ought to live? To go against the ideal not only is bad for society, but it's bad for you as an individual. It's going to ruin your life. Uh, let's take a really simple one and really obvious one. We've now moved into what's called fat positivity in our culture. This is once again saying that being fat is not unhealthy because again, if we say that being skinny or uh, in shape is a healthy lifestyle, that assumes that there's an ideal in how we should treat our health. And that makes people who are not fit feel marginalized. So I, I even heard a nutritionist say that any attempt to lose weight for any reason other than it it just coincidentally happened is fat phobia. Yeah, I heard that too. So the the idea there is it was once again we cannot set up any ideal because that makes people feel bad. So uh, <clears throat> let's just take that one. What if crazy thought here, maybe societies didn't just arbitrarily select being healthy and fit as corresponding to health and idealism, perhaps they saw it that way because it actually is better for you. Well, if that's true, then to throw out the ideal and to embrace any nutritional lifestyle is to actually and actively promote unhealthy behavior that will kill people, right? Literally kill people. The number one cause of death in our country is still obesity-caused illnesses. Yeah, right? heart disease. Heart disease and things like that. And even during the COVID pandemic, there was a huge striation in the population between people who had unhealthy lifestyles and COVID mortality, right? That was the number one predictor mm. of how COVID was gonna impact you. Yeah, if you had your multiple comorbidities, <clears throat> you were more likely to have a very horrible experience with COVID. That's right, yeah. so if I destroy the ideal and the ideal is correct, then I've actually signed people up to engage in lifestyles that will be bad for them and their communities and everyone around them. The second reason why it's bad is because later on in the Cain and Abel story, you'll notice that one of his descendants is a guy named Lamech. Uh, so later on, this is verse, let's start in 19. Uh, then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada and the second one was Zillah. So you already have polygamy going on. And Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and his father and all those who play the harp and flute. And, and for Zillah, she also bore Tubalcane, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubalcane was Naama. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain will be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. So what do we have? We have someone murdering somebody simply for being offended. What happens when you annihilate the ideal? So whenever you have an ideal within society, you have margins to the ideal. And those people will feel othered, but they're still accepted within the general community. 
what you have to realize is that on the fringes of society, there are fringes within the fringes. And if you annihilate the ideal and then you take something that was once on the fringe and put it at the center of your society, you have to realize there's something at the fringe of that. Something that you wouldn't know about unless you were in that community itself. What happened when we took homosexuality and we put it at the center? And this really didn't happen until we legalized gay marriage, right? That was when we, as a society said, there is no difference. If you want to marry a man, if you want to marry a woman, it doesn't matter. Love is love. There is no ideal way to start a family. Once that happened and people are like, how did our country go so crazy? It's because we idealized something that was at the fringes of society. Once we idealized it, mm. then the fringes came into the limelight. So if you were in the LGBTQ community before gay marriage was legalized, you already knew about gender identity. You already knew about transgenderism. You knew about all this stuff. It was in your community, but it was at the fringes of your community drag queens and all that stuff. It was in there, but it was just at the fringes. But now that you're in the center, guess what? The fringes are now in the limelight and they've, they're now moving into the center. They're trying to move into the center. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so it, it seems radical. It seems <clears> like, <throat> man, we went to hell in the hat. It's because if you take a fringe and you make it the new ideal, you've actually invited in all the more fringe aspects of that identity group. Or at the very least saying we reject the idea of an ideal mm -hmm. and, and, and in a way to do that is to put this at the center of attention. That's right. Not saying that this is ideal, which eventually that's what they're going to say. That's what they're trying to say. Is yeah. that because they're going <laughs> to use arguments like population and all the, all the reasons why we shouldn't have families, especially mm -hmm. big families. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't even be surprised if people who hold this perspective would start suggesting China-like policies, like mm -hmm. one-child policies and things like that. Not that that would ever necessarily happen on a governmental level, yeah. at least not, hopefully not in my lifetime, but uh, I could imagine theorists saying we should do that. We, this is the best thing for humanity because of global warming, because yeah. of populate, overpopulation of the earth, all those quote-unquote scientific reasons why we should not be propagating the species, and what a better way than to celebrate those kinds of things that don't make babies. Yeah. And one last, and this is the biggest consequence of annihilating the ideal, and then we'll get into questions. The biggest consequence is what the ideal does is it convicts us of sin. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says the law was given that all mouths may be stopped and the world be found guilty before God. What's the purpose of the law? The law is the ideal life that someone could live. Paul says God gives us the ideal not because we could be it, but because by knowing it, we might understand our fallen nature. And if we understand our fallen nature, then we, are, we succumb to what's called guilt, and guilt motivates us towards salvation. So the reason why I came to God is because I realized I'm not living up to the ideal. I am sinning. I am falling short of what I ought to be. And then I found the concept of the gospel to be beautiful because the gospel says you're not living the ideal, but there's someone who did. And you can actually have, by accepting his sacrifice for you, you could actually have his righteousness imputed to your account. That he lived the life that I should have lived and he died the death that I should have died. By believing in that, you can be forgiven and brought into the kingdom of God. When a society annihilates the ideal, they've annihilated the potential for forgiveness. Because in order to seek forgiveness, you must have an encounter with something being wrong with you. This is why the Pharisees could not find grace, but the tax collectors and the whores could. The good thing about the culture that the, ta the Pharisees created was the Pharisees created a culture in which the law was at the center. 
The problem, and because of that, it marginalized certain people. They knew that they were wrong, and it readied them to accept the gospel. Hmm. The problem with the Pharisees is that the law was at the center, but they claimed to have been fulfilling it. Hmm. So they weren't able to accept it. The law was supposed to, it's a two-edged sword, it's supposed to cut everybody, yeah. right? The law was supposed hmm. to be at the center, and they were also supposed to be on the margins, just on a different side of the margin than the whores and the tax collectors. Yeah, that's why Jesus would say, do what they say, but not what they do. They give you heavy burdens, but they don't, do, they don't lift a finger nor do they carry those burdens themselves because exactly. that's why he called them hypocrites. They, and that's why so many people in the 60s rebelled against 1950s cultures because it was the same thing. They put the law at the center, which was a good thing, but then they put on a facade as if they were actually keeping it. And therefore, all the kids growing up in that hypocrisy rebelled and said, there is no ideal, right? Our parents say that this is ideal, but they mistreat us and they behind closed doors, they're totally different people. So. Screw hmm. this, we're going to go our own way. And then they annihilated the ideal. But really, the reason why they did it, it's not because they were mad at their parents. They were mad because they knew that the ideal was correct. Hmm. And it called them out as a sinner. And it was better for them to just say, there is no ideal. Well, if you can't find anybody that. who's actually living up to the ideal, then it's what's the It's easy to assume that there isn't one. Yeah. Right? As opposed to thinking, again, nobody will actually make it. The ideal is there to convict me of what's wrong with me and move me towards God, right? That's why so it's there. So the problem these parents were having is that they were trying to pretend that the ideal was attainable right? and that they were living it right. hypocritically right. rather than having humility and saying, no, there's an ideal. We just fall short and that's where we're aiming. Yeah. We're hitting here. We're aiming there to have grace on us, teaching, the, teaching their kids what it means to have grace mm. rather than being sort of like Pharisees in their own homes. Yeah. Is that a fair? Absolutely. I mean, think about Abel. What made him the ideal man? It's, it says nothing about his behavior, by the way. It only says what? He put the right sacrifices forward. That insinuates that he understood his fallen state before God. Hmm. The right ideal in this <clears throat> fallen world is not the person that is living up to the ideal because no one can. It's the person who recognizes their fallen nature and is hmm. orienting themselves towards thanksgiving to the right sacrifice in God. Well, if the That's author it. of Hebrews calls him one of the people in faith, right. <clears throat> that means that he loved God enough to want to give him the choices. That's I mean, right. if you love your spouse, or as also in Romans says, how many fathers who love their children would you know give them a stone <laughs> or whatever it's? Uh, I think it says a stone, or instead of a loaf of bread, if they were to ask you, yeah. you know, even even worldly people want to give good things to those they love. That's right. So, really, what we're seeing is that. Cain, or Abel loved God, Cain did not. Yeah, that's right. And so for Christians out there, in, a lot of Christians have allowed this stuff to enter into our culture out of the name of being compassionate. So like, yeah, the ideal is making them feel bad. And is it really right for me to take my ideal that I believe on the basis of knowing God and mm -hmm. foist it upon somebody else? And the answer is, yes, it is. Because whether or not they believe in the source of the ideal, it remains. Hmm. That is still the correct way to live. And by Christians vacating it, they thought they believed the lie that there is such thing as neutrality. Yeah. That we could create a neutral space in which nobody feels bad because no one's othered. And the answer is no, that is not true. Someone will be othered. Mm -hmm. And if your ideal is not going to be at the center, someone else's will, yeah. and you're going to be on the margins. And then eventually, yes, it'll be the church that are the only othered ones. Because that's really what this amounts to. And as I was saying to you yeah. before the program, 
it's really a naturalistic worldview that allows for this. Yeah. Because only in naturalism can you not use purposive language, that things ought to be a certain way, yeah. that there is an ideal. Yeah. So you have to have an atheistic, naturalistic worldview to start with, hmm. to even live with the idea that there's no ideal. Right. And so all you do is create uh, sort of cosmic justice reasons for having, not ideals, the, not having an ideal is the only ideal. Yeah. It's, it's circular reasoning, really, yeah. unfortunately. Because every time they say, well, this is unjust, this is wrong, this is against democracy, all the things that you hear, that why such and such is bad, mm. um, they don't work out. They actually, when you, turn, when you apply the same principle to itself, it crumbles because they are not functioning in a world where you have a theistic worldview mm. where there is an ought. Yeah. You can say things were designed for a purpose and a reason to be the That's way they right. are. Right. <clears throat> speaking of purpose. So, yeah, speaking of purpose, um, teens want to date. I, I, guess, I don't know I don't about know why. now. I, don't know. <laughs> I, I heard that uh, desires for marriage and relationships, the, the, the ideals are being rejected so much so that marriage rates are going way down. Mm-hmm. However, it does not mean that, that people aren't hooking up, aren't getting together. So if you're a parent and you don't want your children to just – merely adopt hookup culture mm-hmm. and that <clears throat> intimacy is very very valuable and precious and um, ought to be protected and your kids are interested in relationships how do you set up um, a model for dating yeah so what we have to understand about the bible is that the bible was written to a culture that did not have what we call dating just didn't they had a betrothal process that was very interesting and more intricate than people realize in modern day culture, but I'm not going to get into what it was because it's not really important for our purposes here. The Bible also does not say that the betrothal process was the ideal. That's why it's not really described in the Bible. It's just assumed because that's the culture that people were writing in. Now, what is presented to us is the idea of what we call the correct way to formulate a healthy relationship built around love, glorifying to God, and having sexuality being a part of that, right? That's what we have. We have an ideal of a romantic relationship, but we don't have an ideal of how to get there, right? There, there are many different ways to get there, but there's, there is an ideal of what we're supposed to be aiming towards. So every system you have, if you're in a country that has a betrothal system, you can set that up in a way where you're still shooting for the ideal. If you're in a dating culture, you can set that up in a way where you're still aiming for the ideal. There is no definitive objective way to get there, but there is a place that we need to be aiming towards. So what is it? Once we understand what it is, we can work backwards and figure out how to get there. What's the best way to get there? All 12 of my tours in South Asia, I was offered an arranged wife. <laughs> if you want to come back next time, we'll have a wife waiting for you. I was like, okay. Uh, can I sort through them first? <laughs> um, so what, what is the idea? Well, it says in the Bible that marriage, and this is from Ephesians chapter 5, it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's from the Song of Solomon, it's through, throughout the Bible. Marriage is to be a depiction of, not a perfect depiction, but a transposed depiction of God's perfect love for his people. That's what marriage is supposed to emulate, right? It is a way for us to understand how God, who is other than us, different than us, is able to have a relationship with someone who is other than him. What kind of love is present that allows him to draw near to us, to choose us, and to uh, actually have a 
eternal relationship with us, right? Everything about marriage is supposed to emulate this, right? And everything we even do in the marriage ceremony emulates this. This is why we give rings to one another. It's because rings are circular and they depict eternality, right? It's why the woman comes to meet the man. That's a picture of the bride of Christ, the church, ascending into heaven and meeting Jesus in heaven, right? There's a reason why there's a banquet afterwards, because Roman <laughs> Revelation 19 has a banquet after the way, right? Everything you do in, in marriage is supposed to emulate what the picture is, right? What the symbol is representative of. So in a relationship, you see that the depictions there are, again, supposed to be representative of God's love. That means that there has to be mutuality, there has to be consent, there has to be uh, affection, there has to be love, there has to be passion, there has to be intimacy, right? All these things are present because that's what's present in the love that God has for his people. And there's also exclusivity. Now, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 is this is why sex is reserved for marriage. So the Corinthians were like, well, what's wrong with having sex with prostitutes? Because everybody around us does it. And Paul's argument is, well, when you look at the way that God enters into his people, he is exclusive with one church. And he doesn't give us his spirit until we have elected to invite him in an eternal way. God doesn't commit to us for a time. God doesn't try us out. God, when he commits to us, he commits to us for time and eternity. That's the whole point. And when I'm committing myself to God, once again, when I gave my life to God, I don't know about you guys, it wasn't, hey, we'll try this on a trial basis. You know, we'll really I'll see how this works. give you 30 days, maybe 100 days at the most, like a mattress, you know, just 100 days, 100 nights. <laughs> We'll and see. even when I enter into heaven, I don't know if I'm going to like it. So maybe give me a million years, and then if I don't like it, I'll kind of opt out and go what's, to the other place. What's you your know? return policy around here? <laughs> it's, no, no, no. It's eternal. I'm, I'm choosing you. I'm electing you. I'm going to be with you forever. That's the whole idea. And so Paul is saying it is a monstrosity to do with your body what you haven't been willing to do with your life yet. Hmm. If you're not willing to give someone all of your life, do not give them all of your body. That's the idea. And so if I want to represent that ideal in my relationship, I have to understand that that's what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming for sexual exclusivity with one person that is only consummated once I have given that person my life. And that would be marriage. That's why you're doing it. Now, you also have to understand we're in a fallen world and you have a fallen nature. And that means that even though that's the ideal, you're not going to want to live up to the ideal. You're going to want to be with other people, and you're going to want to shoot the, you know, jump the shark a little bit when it comes to your dating relationship. You are going to want to desire to have sexual intimacy before you are married. And what I tell couples is, if that's not a temptation for you, then maybe you shouldn't get married. So if you could date someone that you love, and you genuinely want to spend the rest of your life with them, and you have no desire whatsoever to be intimate with that person, something is the matter. Something is very wrong. And either that's a medical problem or it is a spiritual problem. It is a compatibility issue. But that should be a temptation within your relationship. Uh, in fact, in Proverbs 30, uh, King Agur, who's kind of pontificating about the mysteries of the world that he doesn't quite understand, one of them is a man who is with a virgin. Right? He's just like, he's like a, a cobra that's coiled up. I don't really understand. I don't really get how an eagle flies through the air. And I don't get how a man just is with a virgin and doesn't have sex. You know, he's just like, I, I don't really grab how that works because it's just, it's hard. It's very, very difficult. So because we understand the difficulty present, you need to have constructed within your dating <clears throat> relationship boundaries mm -hmm. that fit your predispositions. I, I never prescribe people blanket ones or generalizations. I tell them that there are some obvious ones, like you shouldn't see each other naked, 
right? Nakedness is exclusive for marriage because your body is, once again, by exposing my body to you is a picture of me giving my body to you. That's why it's a euphemism for sex in the Bible, right? In Leviticus chapter 19, uncovering the nakedness of somebody is a clear euphemism for having sex with them, right? Your body is important. Revealing yourself, exposing yourself to another human being is an incredibly vulnerable thing to do, especially when it is in a sexual context. You should not do that until you are ready to marry that person. They're called private parts for a reason, right? So you, you save that. You shouldn't be exposing your private parts to the person you're dating. That is supposed to be reserved for marriage. You also shouldn't be engaging in any activity in which you are stimulating private parts. Because once again, that is going towards, it is moving over the ideal, and you're now moving into a, a, a situation where you're exposing things and utilizing things that are supposed to be done in exclusivity when you have given your life to that person. You're, you're, again, you're giving the most intimate parts of your body to someone that you haven't given your life to. That's not good. So that's what you're, why you're supposed to wait for that. So those are the, the only really general rules I could give you. Other than that, there's a lot of flexibility, right? Some people say, hey, we, don't, we didn't kiss before we got married. That's great, right? But what you're articulating is you understood that if you were to kiss, it would lead to other things. And so because of that, because of the weakness in your flesh, you actually drew a boundary around that. And that's great for you to recognize. Mm -hmm. It is bad for you to impose that on other couples and assume that they think and would have the same difficulty that you did. Perhaps someone else draws <laughs> the boundary in a different location. Could you argue, though, that uh, on the kissing thing, that uh, kissing isn't a normal function of our social interaction with one another. But there are many things that you do in dating relationship that is not a part of your normal social relationship, right? You should, as you're dating, especially as you get closer to marriage, you should be talking about having kids. You should be talking about marriage. You should be communicating about sex and, you know, what your ideals are. and what Well, but on a physical level, <clears throat> it's the only thing that, that um, you know, can, can be construed as the exchanging of, you know, bodily fluids because you're kissing, you know, assuming eventually it could be open mouth but it's all part of the intimacy experience mm -hmm. and all part of marital intimacy like i said i could see someone making a wisdom argument for that like i think it's wise that yeah, you were struck uh, yeah yeah i wouldn't say that making it a rule would right. be good it would be but it wouldn't it wouldn't you th say that it would be a healthy suggestion so con for, for consideration say well you might want to consider not yeah so like there's certain forms of affection that are appropriate right. for friends and then there are so me and my wife kissed before we got married and it wasn't a problem for us we we did wait until we were engaged that was important to us because i was like I, I don't want to move you know it's, it's just like anything else you're growing in intimacy there are yeah. there are certain mm -hmm. emotional boundaries that we left up until we started getting closer mm -hmm. together and be, we became more committed and they didn't fully come down until we got married. Same with physical boundaries. There was a lot of physical boundaries that we had up. And then as our dating became more and more serious and intentional, it started, those boundaries came down and then we moved into marriage. We, so just, we did it pretty much similar as that as well. Yeah, so that, that was just something that we did and it, it was fine. We never uh, moved further than that in our dating relationship. But I could see a lot of people saying, making the argument that you're making. I'm, I'm not discounting it. I'm just mm -hmm. saying it's it's bad for us to assume that that's a generalized rule. So if you're a teenager with very less levels of self-control, <laughs> presumably, because you're a teen, yeah. um, and like some of the rules that, that we came up with were things like not being alone in an environment that could be that's conducive fair. to physical intimacy. Yeah. So in other words, my rule at my house was is that when my guests leave, you need to be right at their footsteps. Mm -hmm. 
meaning as my get if, if I'm having a gathering and you want to spend we were going to spend time together when the group begins to exit the premises you are right alongside them you don't linger you don't wait and it was a very very important rule because temptation and we just knew that and I'll even it go was one unwise. step <laughs> I'll even go one step over that I, I think you're absolutely correct but there's another passage of the bible says to avoid the appearance of evil so I don't know how it was in your high school, but in my high school, gossip was kind of the thing. Mm -hmm. And if yeah. you are in a compromising situation, especially for the girl, I have to be very emphatic about that, especially for the girl, it can actually create a situation in which you are going to be mocked, denigrated, and looked down upon for something that maybe you didn't even do. And so it's, it's better. If, if you're the man in that situation, you should not put your girlfriend in that mm. situation. Yeah, and if we, you're the girl, I would strongly encourage you not to put yourself in that situation. Back in the day, when I was uh, in the mid-90s, I was in youth ministry, youth leader, pastoring, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I, I was part of the Kiss Dating Goodbye crowd. I wasn't adoptive of the whole book, but the concept that, that if you're not in a place in your life where you can make a lifelong commitment to marriage, then you shouldn't be walking down the path that leads to marriage. You should withhold that. Now, that's not to say that you cannot develop opposite sex relationships, even exclusive ones. But that was the point, is that call it something else. But when we say we kiss dating goodbye, the idea was to say, we're gonna get rid of the hooking up culture within our young people's lives. We want to encourage them to throw it away, to kiss mm -hmm. it goodbye. This idea of, oh, now I'm with this guy, now I'm with this girl, and, and it's just a, and, and it's all physical and emotional and there's mm. no real intent behind it and there's no real thought that oh well these are things you do you know you're i'm in love with this person all those emotional all these culturally incorrect versions of relationships very unhealthy there's a healthy way to date and there's an unhealthy way to date and i think yeah the rebellion of the 90s church yeah. against that and now demonization of it because he's now recanted the book he's actually left the faith Unfortunately, Joshua Harris uh, did that. And um, I didn't really pay much attention to the book, just the concepts. I did appreciate his book, um, Boy Meets Girl, mm -hmm. where he actually talks about the proper way uh, and what a courtship means. And that's what I, when I wrote my letter to my then friend who became my girlfriend slash fiance, mm -hmm. <laughs> I wrote a letter describing what courtship meant and that courtship is the idea that you are pursuing God together to see whether or not a lifelong marriage is like where you should go right there's a there's a great proverb that says it is an abomination for someone to chew food and then spit it out um now and that's not talking about table manners what it's saying <laughs> is if i if i separate something from its telos if i separate something from its purpose mm. i've done something abominable and so someone saying well dating isn't marriage so why, why do you care so much well that's kind of like saying chewing isn't swallowing it, it, it isn't the same thing, but mm -hmm. one ought to lead to another. The telos, the purpose of chewing, is to swallow. That's mm -hmm. why you're doing it, unless you're right, chewing yeah. gum. And that's right? the, that was the point of why I taught the kiss, da the kiss dating goodbye message, was the, right. precisely for that kind of line of thinking. I, right. I got so much backlash from the teens and right. a lot of parents well, who... Of course, you know, they're, they're not going <laughs> to like to hear that. And, and the point is, is that... Uh, you know, some people argue, well, teens aren't ready to hear that. Well, really, because through most human history, especially teenage girls, we're ready to marry. And that is a problem of the maturity and the, uh, the, the, 
prolonged adolescence that we promote in this country, which I'm not going to get into right now. But uh, a big problem is the idea that teens are not emotionally mature enough to understand that. Now, I would argue that a lot of boys aren't, but a lot of girls are, right? A lot of girls are ready, and that's why a lot of girls date older men. It's because they're, they're ready for that, that level of commitment, and a lot of teenage boys aren't. So I would say that, that once again, if you're separating the chewing from the swallowing, something's going wrong, right? Mm -hmm. If you're separating the dating from the marriage, then what is the purpose of dating? You're going to have to explain to me what the purpose of mm -hmm. dating is yeah. if it's not to marry. Um, and if you're going to say, well, it's just to have a good time, well, you know, then, then what you're promoting is an ideal that is different than what the Bible promotes. Yeah. And that is that sexual contact and emotional intimacy are not designed for commitment and purpose and intent, but they're designed for recreation. And that is the exact argument that the Corinthians use. Food is for stomach and the stomach for food, hmm. right? It's just, I have an appetite for it. I want to do it. So why shouldn't I do it? And the answer is you shouldn't do everything you want hmm. because sometimes you need to connect. Once again, you need to connect the actual purpose of something with what you're doing. So how does that, like practically speaking, uh, I, when I went through these lessons and it was a very memorable day because I was filling the pulpit for our pastor that Sunday and they said, yeah, that sounds like a great subject. Why don't you teach on dating? And so I, I gave my message and got a lot of backlash. But I just I said, look, if you're not in a place to make that lifelong commitment, then you shouldn't be dating. And what is dating? What does it mean? Mm -hmm. And so I just defined, you know, the idea of having an exclusive relationship, pursuing whether or not we should culminate this relationship into a lifelong commitment called marriage. Um, and then with that comes a sort of an exclusiveness to it. So mm -hmm. if you have exclusive relationships with members of the opposite sex and you're developing emotional ties and intimacy with that person that you don't have with your other friends, mm -hmm. then that is, you've already now entered into what's called kind of like a dating relationship. And those should be avoided altogether mm -hmm. if you're not in a place in your life where you're mature and ready to actually engage in marriage. Yeah, and so like you said, you know, it's okay to develop that, right? So. If if you have, let's say, a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old that really like one another and they want to, you know, start probing the idea of becoming exclusive with one another, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, hey, I'm committed to be with you, I want to be with you, and as parents to be involved in that, to, to say, like, okay, let's, let's see how this goes, you know, th these are kind of the boundaries because you guys are teenagers, you don't have much autonomy in anything in your life, and that would include your dating life. And as they get older, right, when they get to be 16, 17, things like that, the boundaries from the parents start to go away. And now it's up to the kid to make those boundaries for themselves, right? But it's okay for as a parent, because again, you, you construct boundaries around every mm -hmm. area of your kid's life when they're teenagers. Their dating relationship should not be different. Now, culturally, we see that as embarrassing now and things like that. And I think there are embarrassing ways that parents can do that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they can pose themselves on their kids' dates and things like that. But I think some of the rules that you did, hey, make sure it's in group settings. Hang out with one another yeah. in group settings. You that was know? one of the things I emphasized the most, that if they're, you're not going to avoid interest in other people. That's impossible. Right. But, you know, do it in the context of your friendships. Right. Do it in the context of the community that you're in. When you get together, get together as a group. And you can have you know, a, a, an intimate connection with that person in the sense that, well, I really like this guy and I really like this girl and I really love chatting with them. And so you might find us chatting more than I am chatting with all my other friends in the group setting, mm -hmm. but you're creating an environment that is healthy for that relationship to grow and for you to grow as an individual mature with your maturity wise and, and without putting temptation in, in the way and without putting the physical, emotional uh, baggage that comes with, um, irresponsible 
and you're, you're going to have to understand something as well. For the, and I'll end with this because we're almost out of time. Uh, there's a difference between the masculine and the feminine. Now, again, that doesn't mean that all men think this way and all women think this way, but there is a traditional difference between how the masculine and the feminine need to fight this. So what the masculine is fighting is that the body leads the soul. In other words, I want to do something with my body, and it doesn't matter if I've connected with you on any other level, right? That's the problem that the man has to figure out. How do I get my body to follow my soul? In other words, I'm connecting with you emotionally, and now I'm committed to you. And now we're acting that out with our bodies in a correct manner and at the correct time. The feminine, what they have to fight, and this is the correct way to fight it anyway, by the way, is that the body's going to want to follow the soul. So in other words, as you become more and more emotionally connected to somebody, you're going to want to act that out with your body. And so the problem with saying like, well, you could just start dating whenever. The problem with that is as you become more and more emotionally intimate with someone else, especially for the girl, you're going to want more and more to act that out with your body. And for the guy, he's already there, right? He's already wanting to act it out with his body. He had to get a soul on board. You are now moving in the correct trajectory. And if your defenses start to fail, I guarantee his already have. And it's going to be increasingly difficult. Doesn't mean you can't, but prolonged dating relationships are almost impossible, right? God did not design us to do that. It's almost impossible to not go too far because you're already connecting emotionally on so many different levels. You like this person, you're attracted to them, you're hanging out with them all the time. The idea that you could date for four, five, six years and not succumb to temptation is just ridiculous. And where the body wants it enough, the you're going to find a way, right? Mm. So, so be very, very careful so about it's that. A, it's kind of like a roller coaster. Once you kind of get on and start ratcheting up to the top, it's designed to go the full ride. That's right. And it's, it's a little hard to pump the brakes <laughs> when you're at the peak. Well, I, I think we spent some valuable time on that. It's such a big subject. I know it was for when I was in youth ministry and really appreciate the question. We'll try to get to your other questions uh, tomorrow. So please chime in, same place, same, same time. Thank you so much for engaging with us. We hope you enjoyed the program. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.